For those of you who are just joining us, I admitted last week when we went to chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, and I said, you know what? I skipped chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. And I don't want to skip it. And so we're going to come back and we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So if you're just joining us and then you go, well, wait a minute. I thought we did chapter 3 last week, verses 1 through 9, and you're going backwards instead of forwards. Yes and no, I'm going backwards because I didn't do chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. But we will eventually go back forward. So thank you for being graceful and merciful to me, a sinner. And again, I hope and pray that God uses it again for his glory and for your good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God and the word made flesh, for the gospel, for Jesus, for love, for grace, for mercy, for forgiveness and hope and reconciliation. And Heavenly Father, we pray that you would purify our hearts and our minds Lord, we pray that we would hear carefully what the Spirit has to say. Lord, we pray that we would believe your promises. Lord, we pray that we would be obedient to your commands. Lord, we pray that we would heed your warnings. And so we commit this time to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Peter chapter 2. Beginning in verse 19, Peter writes, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome The latter end is worse for them than the beginning, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. In the second chapter of Second Peter He warns them about false teachers. Peter writes about their condemnation in verses 1 through 9. Their character in verses 10 through 16. Their claims in verses 17 through 22. And as Peter writes about their character, he points out their pride in verses 10 through 11. Their ignorance in verse 12. Their lust in verse 13 and 14. Their covetousness in verse 15 and 16. And now Peter points out their outrageous promises. They promise spiritual satisfaction, but they are wells without water, clouds without rain the false teacher uses a kind of spiritual propaganda great swelling boasts in verse 18 the false teacher is deceptive in verse 19 with the appearance of saying something truthful and helpful perhaps even beautiful false teachers make great promises satisfaction liberation But what follows the false teachers and false religion are more chains, 
increased shackles. The prisoner is just simply transferred from one prison to the next. And the false teacher offers a promise of a changed life, but they themselves are powerless to change in verse 19. And so the false teacher appeals to the fresh follower who is content to change prison stripes for prison orange. You can train a dog to do remarkable things. You can wash a pig. You can use suds and perfume. But the dog remains a dog and the pig remains a pig. And let me be very clear here. Sheep remain sheep. And the shepherd remains the shepherd. People can run from and refrain from the outward pollution of the wicked world, but they cannot change on the inside or experience true salvation and true regeneration apart from the Spirit of God and apart from the Word of God and apart from the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The false teacher may profess bits and pieces of historical biblical Christianity, but they don't possess the Spirit of God and have a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Peter's profile and warnings include three principles for recognizing and then rejecting the false teacher. Number one, recognize that the false teacher is dangerous, not harmless. Number two, recognize the false teacher will be judged by the Lord. Number three, repudiate and reject the false teacher's sinful and self-centered lifestyle. And now Peter adds another principle in recognizing and rejecting the false teacher. He says, I want you to remember their true condition. The false teacher is a prisoner, enslaved and in error and destined for a sorry end. Is it Wrong to love them and to pray for them and to reach out to the false teacher. Of course not. We pray for wisdom and we pray for love and we pray for courage. But we also have to make sure that we're not corrupted by their false teaching or false practices or wicked lifestyle. Now, some people reading this particular passage and they open up their book, they might be thinking, well, Peter, you're out of line here. You're off base. Are there Christians who would express shock at Peter's dogmatism and decry his intolerant attitude? How dare you, Peter, sit in judgment of another man's religion? How dare you? How, no matter how perverse, no matter how wicked, how dare you? How can anyone be sure who's right, who's wrong? Do you think Peter's mean-spirited when he calls these people false teachers in verse 1, heretics in verse 1, doomed in verse 1, without regard to normal constraints or conventions? Peter calls them corrupt in verse 14, addicted in verse 14, seduced, sophisticated, and cursed. I was going to use the D word, but it's not in the text. The false teacher is entangled in sin in verse 20, overcome by that sin, which is a moral disaster. The sinful entanglement leads to the moral disaster, which leads to spiritual degeneration. And then he describes, you're worse off than you were at the beginning. 
And he begins with false teachers making empty promises. Look again in verse 19. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. Look again. Peter has already written about their empty preaching in verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, empty preaching... And now another empty promise. Liberty. What do you mean? Freedom. Why, they promise you freedom. What kind of freedom? Why, the freedom to pursue personal pleasure, sexual pleasure, financial freedom. The false teacher promises his or her follower, guess what? You're free to live any way you please or any way I please. That's the point. Thomas Merton wrote, First we practice sin, then we defend it, then we boast about it. That's exactly what the false teacher does. Peter writes the false teachers are empty in their words. Empty like springs without water in verse 17. The false teachers have no real life-giving message. They are uncertain and changing in principles and position, unstable, misdriven by storms in verse 17, boastful words in verse 18, seductive, appealing to the sensual and the lustful desires of fallen, sinful human beings, appealing to the carnal and sinful human nature in verse 18, heartless, making their appeal to the most sensitive and vulnerable, appealing to the unsettled souls, recently converted, now deceived, promising freedom, slaves of depravity. And you know why? Because they're not slaves of Christ. Throughout the New Testament, Peter, when he refers to himself, he says, the slave of Jesus. James calls himself the bond slave of Jesus. Peter, James, John, the New Testament writers, they understand that you're going to be a slave to something or to someone. In the end of verse 19, he says, These false teachers promise freedom, but they're slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, at the end of verse 19, by him also he's brought into bondage. And this is the great irony. The false teacher says, You're free. But they themselves are corrupt and slaves of corruption. This is one of the key concepts right here. They are powerless to change. And do you know why they're powerless to change? Because they're not connected to the power that creates change. You see, it's the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And the Son of God living in the new believer that gives you the power to walk in freedom. They're slaves, not of Jesus, they're slaves, look what it says, they're slaves of corruption. And corruption is cruel and miserable and harsh and power, powerful. Now think about this for just a moment. Who desires Slavery. Most people don't. Slaves have no rights. Slaves have no freedom. Slaves live to do the will of someone else. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear you are a slave to someone, to something. 
yourself, your passion, your desire. By the way, does faith in Jesus result in a changed life? The answer is yes. The person who's been delivered from sin, and here's one of the other keys, the person who has been delivered from sin does not want to remain in the life of sin. Let's be very clear here. Christians are capable of and do commit sin. So the issue isn't whether or not a Christian can commit a sin, because they can. The Bible in 1 John chapter 1 and 2 says, if you say that you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. But the Bible says we've been given an advocate, even Jesus Christ the Lord. That if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It would appear that Peter has in mind the make-believer, the fake-believer, the false teachers who claim to be true followers of Jesus. But now they've rejected Jesus and they've returned to a lifestyle not at all different from the unbeliever. The false teacher returns to public and private lusts and wickedness and selfishness. But they're not content to pursue a lifestyle of private indulgence. They're compelled to encourage and engage others to bring them down as well. They appear to be Christians, but they're not born again. They're not regenerate. Where is the Holy Spirit in their life? The false teacher remains a slave to sin. Sometimes they appear to embrace orthodox biblical faith, but then they turn from that faith. They reject the truth in order to embrace the lie and then they endanger everyone they come in contact with because they encourage others to join them in their freedom but really it's apostasy a person who's been delivered by from sin by faith in Christ again does not desire to remain in sin. As a matter of fact, in in Romans, the sixth chapter, Paul talks about this issue at length, and he talks about the solution. Grace, you're saved by grace, you're kept by grace, you're sustained by grace. You come to Jesus and remain in Jesus because of what Jesus has done. Well, if you teach that, Is it possible that people will abuse grace? That they'll take advantage of grace? Isn't grace a license to sin? And Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 verse 2, certainly not. God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said, quote, Sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, the contempt of his love. The Bible teaches that sin is pleasurable for a season. And make no mistake, it is. Sin feels great. That's why it's powerful. That's why it's addictive. Sin can be exciting and thrilling and stimulating. Drugs can make you feel invulnerable. Sex can make you feel desirable. But guess what? They're only enjoyed for a lasting moment, for a short time. The drugs wear off. The sexual encounter passes. And what's left? Emptiness coupled with disgust and guilt and hollow feelings. We substitute the bread of life for something that is moldy and stale and rancid. 
Here's what the Bible says. Expose the fantasy. Say it out loud. Sin doesn't satisfy. You see, this is how Jesus is different from sin. Jesus keeps his promise and sin never does. The sinner is a slave to sin. But the saint is free to do the will of God. No wonder Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is the servant of sin. And so the false teacher professes and confesses faith, but it's not a real faith. Look at verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus, they are again entangled in them and then overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Peter provides a vivid, a solemn detail about the outcome of these false teachers and their false teaching. Terrible judgment. Is going to take place on those who claim Christ, who claim teaching authority, but are content to live a life of personal and private corruption. For if, it says, after they have escaped the pollutions, it's plural, it's the plural of the noun miasma. It's only here in the New Testament. Miasma was something that was sickening. Dangerous, polluted. It's used in the ancient world by ancient writers to describe the atmosphere when a volcano erupts and the dust and the soot and the gas begin to choke you. When I was in Mexico, uh, we were at my father-in-law's compound and a couple of the girls were preparing a dinner and they were cooking some chili, you know, to make some pico de gallo and all of those wonderful sauces. So they're cooking these sauces, and all of a sudden the chilies catch on fire, and the thing gets filled with smoke, and I'm in another room, and all of a sudden I can feel what tastes like chili in my mouth. And then I start to breathe, and I can feel chili smoke going down into my lungs, and my lungs start burning, and my throat stop, starts closing, and I'm going, ah! Uh, I come, I come stumbling out, and I go, oh, fuma, muy peligroso, smoke, and it's dangerous. That's that's the picture. You've been choked and strangled by sin, and God in Christ gives you clean air to breathe and fresh water to drink. False teachers have known at least some of the truth and then they reject the truth. And so this begins stage one. Look what it says. For if after they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled. I want to draw your attention to that word entangled. Like I said, Christians are capable of sin. Christians can and do sin. The Christian is different from the non-Christian in that when it comes to the issue of wanting and desiring to remain in sin, it was my granny. She used to say, any pig can fall into the mud. But you have to want to get out of the mud. Anyone can stumble and fall. 
The pig remains in the mud. But you have to get up and you have to wash yourself off. When Peter writes, for if after they've escaped the pollutions of the world and they are again entangled in the world, who are they in verse 20? Are these the false teachers or are these the unstable, immature believers? Or does this refer to both of them? Clearly, arguments could be made for one or both. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, You stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. The writer in Proverbs says, The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of, of his sin hold him fast. Sin ties you up. It doesn't set you free. Sin doesn't satisfy. It leads to more sin. And so he speaks of the person who stumbles and then falls. And then he talks about the person who is overcome. Look again in verse 20. They are entangled in them. And then they are overcome by them. When a person is trapped. When the person falls into the snare or the net, when the person is either unwilling or unable to break free from the net, you find yourself in the midst of a moral disaster. You stumble. And then you fall. And then you're trapped. Sin drags you down. In Second Peter chapter 2, look at the very next verse. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. They are entangled, that's stage one. They are overcome, that's stage two. It drags you down. And by the way, when sin drags you down, it drags down your character. And it drags down your will. This is one of the reasons why you know it's sin. Sin doesn't lift you up. It drags you down. The Bible teaches that we can submit to God. We can resist the devil, it says in James chapter 4, verse 7. The way of righteousness that's spoken of in the text, this way, isn't the Catholic way or the Protestant way. It isn't the Arminian way or the Calvinist way. The way that is the way of righteousness is Jesus Christ himself. There's a reason why Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. He is the way of righteousness. He's the way away from evil and wickedness and sin. He's the way. The holy commandment is the word of God. We are judged by what we know. And this is why the Bible says, look, you are going to be held accountable for what you know. It would, would be better to never have known about Jesus or God's word than to know and reject Jesus and God's word. Will God have mercy on the false teacher? Listen carefully. If anything, the false teacher comes under a much stricter judgment. Why does the New Testament say, 
Do not be many teachers among you, knowing that you will incur the stricter judgment. Does God hold you accountable for what you say and do? Oh, yes, he does. And there's no more important message. There is no more important message than the message of the gospel. Sinners can receive grace and mercy and forgiveness and hope in the person of Jesus Christ. There is love and there is mercy and there is grace. It is available to everyone who wants it in the person of Jesus Christ. So being entangled and then being overcome leads to stage three, which is spiritual degeneration. The person finds themselves in a, in a worse position. Peter makes it clear it would have been better off for them not to have known the way of righteousness than knowing it to turn from the holy commandment. Peter offers a comparison, not an option between the two. You might ask this question. In what way is ignorance better than apostasy? The apostate, the heretic, not only persists in delusion, but delights in delusion. In fact, the false teacher, the heretic, not only resists God's help and resists Christ's forgiveness, but they teach others to do it. You don't need God. You don't need Jesus. You're fine just the way you are. What? Are you going to church again? What? Are you opening your Bible again? What? You're praying? Nobody's listening. You have to listen to yourself. You have to trust yourself. If you don't take care of yourself, no one is going to take care of you. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Peter doesn't share the idea that the false teachers, false teaching or immoral lifestyle are excusable. Oh, maybe maybe they don't know what they're doing or maybe they don't know what they're saying. What? Read the text. Go back to the chapter. Chapter 2, verse 2. They have rejected the way of truth. He calls it the way that is right in verse 15. The knowledge of the Lord and Savior in verse 20. The way of righteousness in verse 21. Jesus makes reference to someone who's the recipient of deliverance and cleansing. And in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 12, you remember the story. He speaks of a person who is delivered from an unclean spirit. And it says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty and swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it be for this wicked generation. Peter suggests the false teacher has seen a glimpse of grace They've tasted love. They've been exposed to Christ. 
They've neglected or resisted or perverted the rules of love of Jesus and the true master. They twist and turn and torture the text to suggest that freedom is slavery and slavery is freedom. Can you imagine you have this glimpse? You see grace for a moment. You look into the pure sunlight of the mercy that's found in Christ and then you look away into the darkness. Jesus says, I died to set you free from sin. We're not free to sin. If people refuse to follow Jesus' commands, there's only one other option. They're going to follow somebody else's commands. They're going to listen to the voice that's inside of their head, or they're going to listen to the voices that are outside in this world. And I've got to tell you something. Every time you sin, you make it easier to yield to sin. And it becomes harder to resist sin. You weaken and you lose your resolve to submit to God and resist the devil. And I've got to tell you something. If you invite sin to come and visit you just for a single night, you're going to find out they're just like your relatives from Arkansas. Hey, I brought all of our, our cousins and aunts and uncles and neighbors. They don't just come. They bring everyone with them. Jesus made it clear to the false teacher and the religious leaders in his own ministry. In John chapter 8, verse 31, to the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, quote, If you hold to my teachings, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They, the religious leaders, answered him, We're Abraham's descendants and we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be free? And Jesus replied, I'm telling you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family. But a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Stage four is complete apostasy. In stage four, you'll notice that they turn away. In verse 21 and 22, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it. Look what it says. To turn. To turn from the holy commandment. Verse 22. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his vomit. A sow having washed to wallowing in the mire. The false teacher turn from the holy commandment. Turn their backs on Jesus. Turn from the commandment of Jesus. Return to a lifestyle of personal pleasure and personal sin. The false teacher has turned from the commandment. This is almost certainly a reference to the law of Jesus. It's almost certainly a reference, I think, to everything that is true concerning historical, biblical Christianity. Think about what's happening. They're turning from that and then returning to the life of pleasure. Now, I want you to understand something. 
the apostate, the heretic, the false teacher is unfair and unkind with the gospel. It's the apostate finds the gospel at fault. Well, you know, I tried Christianity and it didn't work for me. What part of it didn't work? Well, you know, I tried Christianity. I went to church and I did this and I read my Bible and I did that and I did this and I did that. And it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Well, what wasn't enough? Well, I know that Jesus came to the planet Earth and he lived the perfect life that I could never live. And he died on the cross for my sin and he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the father. But it's not enough. What? That's not enough. I still want to do what I want to do. I still want to sin and I still want to live a lifestyle of sin. And, And you know what? The problem is the gospel. It didn't change me. Really? Really? The message of hope and the message of life and the message of forgiveness and the message of reconciliation and the message of hope and the, the message of forgiveness never changed you? The Bible says it will change you. The Bible says that if you are willing to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus, he'll give you a new heart and he'll give you a new life and he'll give you a new hope. That's the commandment. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 14, Paul writing to Timothy says, You keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ shows up. What commandment? This is the commandment, he says to the religious leaders. What must I do to to work the works of God? Believe on him. Believe on him whom God has sent. What do you mean? Jesus is saying, I want you to trust me. I want you to love me. I want you to believe me. It would, have, it would seem that the false teachers, they have a familiarity with biblical Christianity. The New Testament speaks of people who, who desire the office of the teacher or the pastor, the recognition of biblical leadership, but they're not born again. They're not spirit-filled. They're not blood-bought believers. The person has known the truth, departed from the truth, and then engaged on a perilous journey. They've glimpsed at grace. They've seen the light. And then they refuse the light. And they embrace the darkness. The problem isn't with the gospel. He uses the illustration. Of verse 22. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit. A sow having washed to wallowing in the mire. There's a reason he's saying, there's a reason why a dog goes to its own vomit. There's a reason why the pig returns to the mud. It's because the dog is a dog and the pig is a pig. But here's the point of the passage, but a sheep is a sheep. In Isaiah, the prophet says, he shall Feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those who are with young. This week when I was doing some research, I read the story of the 1929 Rose Bowl. It featured USC. And in one play in the game, 
a, a young tackle named Roy Rigel picked up the ball. The, the, the quarterback dropped the ball. The, the, the tackle picked up the ball. And, 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 and in the scuffle, he somehow got turned around and he started running in the wrong direction. And this big old tackle starts lumbering towards his own goal line. And people are yelling, wrong way, wrong way, wrong way. His own quarterback ran him down to the four-yard line and finally tackled him on the four-yard line. He fumbled the ball and it went to the other side. They got the ball back. And then the quarterback went into his own end zone and the other team received a safety, and it was eight to six. And wrong, wrong way, Roy Rigel went into the locker room and he began to weep. It's one thing to go the wrong way when nobody's looking, and it's another thing to go the wrong way when everybody's looking. And he said, I can't go back out there. Those people hate me. They're laughing at me. And the coach said, we have a whole nother half that we have to play. And there's a reason why you're at the position that you're in. We need you. We want you. We have to have you. And he went back in the second half of the game. And he played an outstanding game. And they lost the game. And he went down in history as wrong way Roy Rigel. I know you're going, hey, this isn't a happy story. (laughs) In a way, it is. Because when you're a football player, you can play your position and you can do your very best and you can't do better than your best. You have to understand something. When Peter writes, a dog returns to its vomit, let me ask you a question. Are Jewish people pet lovers? No. No. They think dogs are unclean. Did Jews in the ancient time keep pigs as pets? Jews aren't fond of dogs and pigs. A dog may return to its vomit. A pig may return to the mud. But the sheep, the sheep returns to the shepherd. You see, the most important thing about this message is not how wicked you've been or what wicked thing that you've done. It's the choices that are before you. Vomit, mud, or a shepherd. Because what you actually do will become the biggest indicator of who you really are. And in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, the writer says, Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you with an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And in the event that sin has deceived you and strangled you and broken you and hurt you, And lied to you. And told you that you have no other choice but to continue in the life that you're living in right now. I'm here to tell you it's not true. 
Joseph Alain wrote, quote, Oh, miserable man, what a deformed monster sin has made you. God made you a little lower than the angels, and sin has made you a little better than devils. So I'll exhort you. Embrace grace. Because when you go back to your shepherd, and when he gathers you up in his arms, he will love you. And he will forgive you and he'll take you back. The Lord has given us grace and Jesus is the source of grace. It was Donald Gray Barnhouse who said, love that goes upward is worship and love that goes outward is affection and love that stoops down is grace. And Jesus is willing to stoop down and wash your feet. He's willing to wash you and to cleanse you. Philip Yancey writes, During a British conference on comparative religion, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief is unique to the Christian faith, and they began by eliminating the possibilities. Incarnation, other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. Resurrection, again, other religions had accounts of return from the dead. The debate raged on and for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. He said, what's the rumpus about? And his colleague said, we're discussing what unique contribution among the world religions Christianity provides. And Lewis said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. And after some discussion, the conferees had to agree. It's grace. So what's different? The dog is the dog, and the pig is the pig, and the sheep is the sheep, and the sheep will return to the pasture, and the sheep will return to the grass, and the sheep will return to grace, because it's grace that saved them, and it was grace that sustained them, it's grace that enlivens them, it's grace that keeps them. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who has been entangled in sin and ensnared by sin and fallen into the trap of sin. Lord, I pray for the person who for whatever reason has just for a moment Return to a lifestyle of rebellion and disobedience. They've been living in their mind and in their heart estranged from you. They hear the wicked, deceitful voice say, you can't go back. You've, you've gone to that well too many times. God doesn't love you. He won't take you back. He doesn't care about you. Lord, we hear the voice saying, a dog is a dog is a dog, and a pig is a pig is a pig. But they forget to tell us that a sheep is a sheep is a sheep, and the, and the sheep will return to the shepherd. And Lord, I pray for that man. I pray for that woman. I pray that they would cry out to you right now. I pray that they would say to you, I want the shepherd. 
and I want his arms and I want his love and I want his grace and I want his mercy and his forgiveness and his love. And like the sheep, I I pray that they will say that simple, simple phrase, I just want to come back. Lord, you know their heart and you know their circumstance. Wash them, cleanse them, forgive them, purify their mind and their heart. Lord, I pray for that person who feels estranged from you. I pray that they would turn from their sin even now and that they would turn to you and that they would say, please forgive me. Please love me. Please give me the ability I need to love you and serve you and to live the life that you asked me to live. And Lord, we know that the Bible says, all who come to you, you will in no wise cast out. And so Lord, we come. Lamb of God, we come. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.